you on January 15th of 2020. Give you a uh, kind of a timestamp. So this was roughly two months before COVID shut the world down as we knew it. I know that seems like a long time ago. It does in our house. January 15th may seem like a rather insignificant date to you in the Mansfield house as a day we will remember forever because that's the day that our oldest daughter, Lydia, was born. So to paint a picture for you, uh, it was a cold day outside. There were some snow flurries kind of intermittently coming down. Uh, it was a day when there was a biting wind that we're familiar with here, right? It would cut through all your warmest clothing. Inside the maternity ward in the hospital in Richmond, Virginia, where we lived at the time, things were happening, right? So Katie had been in labor for about 24 hours at this point. She'd been pushing for about three. Um, needless to say, experiences in that room varied. Our uh, oldest daughter, who has a bit of a fighting spirit, was not cooperating with mama, right? So... One of us at that point was suffering from, from tremendous lower back pain, had a lot of nausea, was on the verge of vomiting, hadn't slept in almost 24 hours, and you know it, I'm talking about myself, right? <laughs> That's as funny as I get, by the way. Jokes don't get better. Um, by the grace of God, within a few moments, Katie gave birth to our oldest child, and is a, a moment we got to share we'll never forget. Uh, my experience that day as a new dad taught me two things. One, Katie's now the physically toughest person I know, and I truly mean that. But more importantly, and as it'll tie into our passage today, it taught me that God alone is the giver of life. From the moment our daughter was conceived to the moment she was born, God alone sustained her precious little life. As I nervously stood at Katie's bedside, I was keenly aware I was not in control of the situation, and many men who are in this room have stood in that exact spot and know what I'm talking about. God alone was in control. And while this is visibly true in terms of physical life, as has already been stated, this is just as true in terms of one's spiritual life. This brings you to our text today. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to follow along. We'll be in John 3. We're looking at the first 15 verses of John 3. It's on page 887 of the Bibles underneath the pews, if you would like to follow along there, and I would encourage you to. John 3, verses 1 through 15, I'll be reading from the ESV. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. Amen. Now, before I begin kind of diving into the text here, we've been in 1 Corinthians as a church, so let me provide some context of John. Otherwise, it's like showing up 30 minutes into a conversation that's already been happening, right? We need to kind of know what's been going on. So for starters, thematically, the Gospel of John is unapologetic in its purpose. The very end of John, John writes in chapter 20, verse 30, he says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He uses the word believe or one of its derivatives 249 times in his gospel. You could say he's obsessed with the idea. There's no hidden agenda here for John in his gospel. His purpose is clear. It's twofold. One, it is to convert. And two, it is also to encourage current believers to continue believing. Immediately prior to this engagement in John 3, getting closer to our text here, you could say Jesus' ministry has been, quote, trending. Right? If you go on the Google machine any day of the week, it'll tell you what's trending. Well, Google wasn't around, but if it was, Jesus of Nazareth would have been trending based on what was going on. Immediately prior to this, he had just turned water to wine very publicly as his first sign. And then a few days immediately prior to this, he had something very awkward happen where he made a homemade whip and then went into the temple and cleared it on Passover. And why did he do that? Because of his anger towards the religious elite, specifically a group of people known as the Pharisees, who were profiting from the poor and their desire to worship God. Needless to say, this would have been one of the leading stories on Twitter, had Twitter been around at that time, and it certainly would have been the talk of the town in Jerusalem. Getting closer to our text now, immediately prior to this, in chapter 2, verse 23, when millions of Jews would have been packing the streets of Jerusalem, it says Jesus begins publicly doing signs. So presumably healings, like, hey, you're not sick anymore, touches this guy. Hey, you're not lame anymore, touches this guy, get up, gets up and walks very publicly. And as a result, the text says that people are starting to, quote, believe. Yet in the last two verses of chapter 2, immediately before our text, in chapter uh, 24, 25, we see that Jesus did not believe their belief in him. As God, Jesus can, not, can uh, not only read their minds, but he can see their souls. Nothing is hidden from him, and he sees their spiritual deadness with total clarity. And that's still true today, by the way. Nothing is hidden from him. This is the first time in John that we are shown that while we are commanded to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, not all, quote, belief is true belief that leads to eternal life. This is a weighty truth, but this is a very important truth. And with that, the stage is set and the curtain drawn for our encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus, where the main idea of this sermon, and if you get nothing else, please get this today. You must be born again to have eternal life. There are no exceptions. This will lead me to my first point. We'll be in verses one through four here. My first point is that the new birth is essential for spiritual life. The new birth is essential. Verses one through four. Why is it essential? Essential is a strong word. Very simply, we are all born spiritually dead, as has already been stated today. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 in the text. Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night. At first glance, it seems everything's going all right. It means he's respectful of Jesus, doesn't know who he is. He approaches him and calls him teacher or rabbi. 
That seems all right. So he's probably actually rather approaching him humbly as peer-to-peer, which sounds ridiculous to us, but this is a really impressive guy. So let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. He even attempts a soft-handed compliment by saying Jesus is from God and they know that God is with him. What's wrong with that? And yet immediately in verse 3, Jesus goes hard right in the conversation and says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What? Have you ever had someone hijack a conversation like this? Like, hey, we're going there and I guess you're coming with me. That's kind of what it feels like Jesus does here. It seems random. It's not random. A couple of things to explain in the first two verses. In the in very Right out the beginning, it says Nicodemus was a man. Okay, no kidding, right? Well, John's use of the word, word man here, he's drawing a connection back to the end of chapter 2 that we just highlighted in the beginning, where it says Jesus didn't entrust himself to, quote, man, because he knew what was in their hearts. The point here is that Jesus is reading Nicodemus' mind, and he knows the real reason that Nicodemus is there. Nicodemus is there because he has a condemned heart and he's hiding behind his religiosity. In other words, he's answering Nicodemus' deepest heartfelt question before Nicodemus can ask the question. Second thing to point out, it says that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. It doesn't say why. Maybe he's a busy guy like myself, has a job, little kids, a lot going on. It doesn't say. Maybe after the temple situation when Jesus... Uh, wasn't very pleased with the Pharisees like Nicodemus. Uh, maybe after that, Nicodemus is embarrassed to be seen with them. It's plausible. Again, we don't know. What we do know is that in all of John's writings, night or darkness is always associated with spiritual death. Daytime or light is always associated with spiritual life. The point that John is driving home is that this man is a spiritual corpse standing in front of Jesus. Jesus recognizes Nicodemus' main problem. And he begins to minister to his real need. He must be given spiritual life. Nicodemus comes to Jesus as peer-to-peer. Jesus engages him rightly as Lord and Savior. Now, as we go through this passage, you must understand the problems Nicodemus has are not unique to him. Since Genesis 3, all of humanity has been born into a state of spiritual deadness. This is a wildly unpopular truth within a lot of churches, but it is biblically very clear. Look with me, if you will, at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And if you have a ribbon in your Bible, I would encourage you to keep it there because we're going to come back to this passage. The Bible's under the pew. It's on page 976. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As these verses clearly state prior to the new birth, or another term for that would be regeneration, the doctrinal term, it's the same thing. We are all willing slaves of sin and Satan. This is true for Nicodemus in this moment. This is true for all believers before their conversion. This is true for right at this very moment for my two young daughters downstairs at the age of one and three. And yes, even my unborn son that Katie is currently carrying. This is true. 
It's probably not going to be a shock for you to hear this, but for my two children, I have not had to teach them to be disobedient or selfish. I'm not alone there. They have both inherited a sin nature, a spiritual deadness, and they got it from their dad. That is their biggest problem in life. I'm already praying God would save them. Next, what is spiritual deadness? Look back at John 3. We'll look at verses 3 and 4 here. In these verses, Jesus introduces the first of three different analogies that he's going to use, that of birth. So he uses an analogy that Jesus, or excuse me, Nicodemus as a religious scholar easily should have been able to understand. Just as someone does not choose to be born, so it is with spiritual birth, Nicodemus. In the next section, he'll literally point to the specific passage that Mike already read for us to try to help him out. But before a person is born, again, they're dead to spiritual realities. And that's where this guy is. And that's what Jesus is getting at by saying in these verses, you can't see the kingdom of God. Without the new birth, you will not see God's promised future kingdom, which is laid out in the Old Testament. Nor can you see spiritual realities right now as they happen. For example, for us today, the spiritually dead person, this is a closed book to them. If they can read English, they can read it just like they could any other book. But they cannot read it with the Holy Spirit illuminating things in the passage to speak to your soul. That is a unique privilege that believers have. It also means they have no real relationship with God. Sin has created a void in that relationship. Therefore, they cannot worship what they were made to worship. And as a result, they fabricate their own idols to worship. And we've all done this. For Nicodemus, his idols were very American, you could say. His were his success, his wealth, his position, and his religious discipline. How do we know that? Well, it says he was a Pharisee. So as a Pharisee, he was one of the 6,000 most religious people in Israel. These guys took obeying the Old Testament so seriously that if they had a sore throat on the Sabbath, which was their day of rest, they would pour vinegar in their mouths, but they would not gargle it for fear of breaking the don't work clause. They not only gave 10% of their money, but they gave 10% of the herbs and spices out of their kitchen cabinets at home. Again, they took the Bible seriously, the Old Testament seriously. It mentions in 3.1, he was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was one of the 70 members of their, what we would call Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. He was an extremely wealthy and powerful guy. He didn't get there by accident. And lastly, in verse 10, Jesus describes him as the teacher in all of Israel, not a teacher, the teacher. So this is the guy that all the PhDs, when they have questions, they go to him. If Nicodemus, the teacher in all of Israel, a man of ethnic pedigree, position, power, wealth, and religious zeal, if this man must be born again, friends, then we all must be born again. That's John's point here. For truly, religion saves no one. This man knew the word of God, but he did not know the God of the word. There's a huge difference, and we should take that as a warning to us. So what about you? No matter how long you've been a Baptist, how long your family's been at this church, what position in this church or a church do you have held, maybe? How well you know theology. It's all meaningless apart from the new birth. 
Unfortunately, the church has always had non-believing, quote, believers in it. This is why when James writes his letter, he states that even demons believe and shudder. What he's saying is even demons are capable of believing the way some of you do. That's what he's saying. We need more than intellectual agreement that the gospel is true. Demons know that. We need supernatural heart change, and that only comes from God. Let me ask you a question. One I've had to ask myself this week. Is that honestly how you view people? Spiritually alive or spiritually dead? We should. As a church, is our priority to clean up the lost around us like a Chip and Joanna Gaines HDTV remodel show? Or is it to point them to Jesus so they can be brought to spiritual life? There's a big difference in those two approaches. Cleaning up a dead person is pointless. They're still dead. Jesus actually says in Matthew 23, 15, this is what the Pharisees were doing. And in doing so, they were making the Jews twice as much sons of hell as before. That's what Jesus said. Or if you prefer, as my uncle used to tell me growing up 30 minutes from here in the valley, he'd say, boy, you can put lipstick on a pig. It's still a pig, right? Or perhaps instead of trying to clean up the spiritually lost, you are a believer who has a tendency of being disgusted with the lost around you. How appalling it is that they flaunt their sin and their wickedness. Instead of being filled with compassion for them, in their state of lostness, spiritual deadness, and their need for the gospel. You are filled with anger for what they're doing to the community that you have to live in. Remember, they're spiritually dead. How do we expect them to act? This is not just some irrelevant doctrine that has no implications on us as Christians as we live our lives. It's not. So then what should we do? Should we love the lost around us? Of course. Should we minister to them? Absolutely. Jesus fed the 5,000. He fed the 2,000. He healed people. That's what he was doing immediately before this. But he did it all so that he could do the most loving thing possible, which is point them to him as Lord and Savior. Christian ministry that does not have this as the absolute focal point of their ministry is no better than a pagan ministry that hates Jesus. It's not. This is one of the reasons that Katie and I are excited to join this church next week, if you'll have us. Because from what we've seen, Winchester Baptist Church understands this statement. Morality and religiosity apart from the new birth are meaningless. This is known again as the doctrine of regeneration and this church's confession of faith gets it right. Now, at this point, someone in the back may be wondering, okay, Luke, you're trying to be a little dramatic and say this new birth thing is pretty important. That'll be fair, right? So what exactly is the new birth and where does it come from? Great questions. That leads me to our second point. Second point, the new birth is a divine miracle. We'll be in verses 5 through 12 here. The new birth is a divine miracle. I have two reasons this is a true statement. Fair warning, the first one is longer than the second, so just bear with me. My first reason is the new birth is not a new idea. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. I'm just going to read them to kind of reground us in the text here. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit 
is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus further confuses Nicodemus here by introducing the water or the idea of water and spirit into the discussion. That's odd to us. But one of the unique things about Jesus' ministry is that his message of salvation never changes no matter who he's talking to. It's always look to me, believe in me, trust in me alone to save you throughout the four gospels. You're not going to hear anything different. However, his methods of delivery and exposing one's needs of saving depend on who he's talking to. The very next page of your Bible, he meets a woman at a well. He doesn't primarily talk spirit and water the way he does here with Nicodemus. He talks about three things with her. He talks about her ethnicity. She's a Samaritan. He, she has a differing view of worship. And oh, by the way, she's coming out of a string of bad relationships. That's what he uses as the on-ramp to point her to him as Lord and Savior. Someone else maybe you've heard of. Rich young ruler. What does he talk about? Money. Same thing. Another person you probably have heard of, the Roman centurion whose servant is sick and dying. He discusses authority. So it is with Nicodemus. Again, in verse 10, Jesus said he's the teacher of the Old Testament law. So it makes sense that Jesus is engaging him on the thing that is his identity to show his need for saving. So most likely with this water and spirit reference, he's referring to the passage that Mike already read for us from Ezekiel 36. So this passage is the only place in the Old Testament that I've found where both water and spirit are used together within this idea of salvation of God's people. Again, from the passage, six times, God said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will sprinkle you with water that is purify you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes that is be obedient. What was Israel's role in that passage? The very end, verse 28. Israel's role was simply to trust God by dwelling in the provision that he had provided. That's it. God had done everything else in terms of their salvation. Nicodemus should have understood that salvation is from God alone. He had this passage and numerous others that speak to the same reality in the Old Testament memorized. But again, at this point, this man is spiritually dead and blind to spiritual truth. To go back even further, if you're not buying that Ezekiel 36 is relevant in this passage, okay? God's salvation was promised to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3.15 with the seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent one day. I don't know if you knew this, but Eve wasn't even pregnant yet, right? God had a plan to save man long before they could do anything about it. Again, that which is born of the flesh has physical life, Nicodemus, but you need to receive spiritual life. Just like you had no role in your physical childbirth, you have no role in your spiritual childbirth. My daughters did not ask to be born or try really hard to be born. If you ask my wife, I think she would tell you one of them tried really hard not to be born. But she was still born. And she was born for two reasons. Because God gave her life. And listen, she was born through someone else's suffering. Someone who loved her very much. This has always been God the Father's divine plan. Jesus is the one who brings the, the plan to bear through his suffering. And the Holy Spirit breathes life into a person so they can respond in faith. That's how this works. Let me try to offer some further clarity. Because I know this can be a weighty, kind of confusing doctrine. 
There was a professor at Moody Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois, who taught preaching for a long time. During his introduction to preaching class, he would have all the men show up same days. Hey, boys, Thursday, everybody's going to preach the first sermon. Then, without warning, he'd pack him into a van for an impromptu field trip. A short drive later, he would unload the van, and the men would find themselves in the midst of an old, rundown cemetery in downtown Chicago. The men were instructed to spread out, pick a headstone, and preach their sermon. You can imagine the shock on the men's faces at their instruction, but eventually they would comply. Could you imagine walking by a cemetery on a random Thursday evening in downtown Chicago and seeing a bunch of seminary guys in khakis preaching at headstones? What a bizarre sight. He said his point was twofold. First, he wanted to give his students a visual they would never forget as preachers and teachers of God's word, that they were being called to preach to spiritually dead people whom they could no more bring to life than they could the corpses laying at their feet at that moment. And second, he said he wanted them to remember that if spiritual life did happen under their teaching, they would never forget that it came from God and not them. So Winchester Baptist Church, I'll say the same thing to you as that professor said to those men. Right now, from everything I can see in the little time I've been here, God is blessing this church, and it's been amazing to see. The church is growing in attendance. We've had several baptisms over the past year. Church membership is growing. Katie and I are trying to add to that problem, right? These are all wonderful signs of spiritual life. They are. But let me just wave a little yellow flag in the midst of that. And say that when this happens, and this has been true first and foremost for me in my life, the natural human instinct is to think that we had something to do with it. We didn't. It must have been our effort, our style of worship, the precision of our theology and ecclesiology as Reformed people. That's what did it. After all, we're the ones who are getting the Bible right. Everybody else is all messed up. When you say it out loud, you realize how ridiculous and arrogant it is. But I think if we're honest, we can all fall prey to this type of thinking. I know I can. Church, we have an awesome privilege of being God's hands and feet in this community, but we're not God. And God is not a slot machine with a lever to pull that dispenses salvation on demand. If that were the case, we would be sovereign, not him. Only he gives life, not you, not me, and we can't forget that. So pray, pray that he continues to give life at this church, and when it happens, give him alone the glory, because it's just his. All right, that was my first sub-reason. I know that was long. The second one's shorter. My second reason the new birth is a divine miracle is that it is a gift of love that cannot be manufactured. I want to quickly take you back to the beginning of passage before we look at 8 through 12, because there's something very subtle in the text that I missed the first 50 times I read it, but I think is very important now to tie in. In verse 2, it states that Nicodemus, quote, came to Jesus. Fairly unassuming, nothing exciting here, right? Well, at this point, I would argue differently with that. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says openly and loudly, come to me, come to me if you are thirsty. Come to me if you are hungry. Come to me and I will give you life. Specifically in John 6.37, listen to this. 
Jesus says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Guess how many individuals in the Gospel of John are described as coming to Jesus? One. Nicodemus is mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. I believe it's chapter 7 and 19 of the other two. All three times he's described as coming to Jesus. John is meticulous in how he arranges his gospel. I don't think that's an accident. My point here is that Nicodemus did not show up at Jesus' doorstep because he was curious. He showed up because he had a divine appointment with the grace of God incarnate. Jesus, being the second member of the Trinity, knows this. Jesus loves to do the Father's will, and he is filled with love and compassion for this man. Now, looking back at our text in verse 8, as they're standing there speaking, Jesus gives him another analogy to try to help him out of the wind. So he probably turns to some nearby trees and comments on the the wind blowing as yet another metaphor of the same reality to try to help him out and see his inability to save himself. But you know what else I think is happening here? And I could be wrong. But I truly believe at that moment, Jesus knows the Holy Spirit is starting to blow life into a spiritually dead person. Remember, Jesus has the spiritual eyes that we do not. At that point, Nicodemus is not a believer. We see that in verses 11 and 12 where Jesus says to him, at this point, you do not believe our testimony, so he's not there yet. But I can't help but picture Jesus also somewhat smiling because he knows it's only a matter of time before he will be. And I believe by the end of the Gospel of John, that's where Nicodemus is. I think he is a new creation by the end of John. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 is helpful here as well. Continuing where we left off before. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What I need you to understand at this point is that God's righteous wrath burns towards the unrepentant sinner. And if I were to not say that, you should literally pull me from behind the pulpit. However, at the exact same time, his heart being rich, better translation would be endlessly rich in mercy, he loves to save them. Jesus longs for Nicodemus to be converted. There is nothing that gives him greater joy for truly, in his own words, that's why he came, to save sinners. And to take it one step further, saving is not just what he does. Merciful Savior is who he is at his innermost being. And friend, if that doesn't sound like the Jesus you know, then you know a different Jesus, because that's who he is. Now, I can't help but wonder, even in this small church here, there may be someone sitting here during this message is realizing you may not be born again. You do not love God, not perfectly, but you do not love him. You do not love the church. You have no concern for the lost around you at all. You are spiritually dead. Well, if that's you, 
I actually have some really good news for you today. There is nothing God wants more than to give you spiritual life. So how? I desire to have a changed heart, but how? Well, let me first say, if that's you, you're off to a great start because you didn't get there on your own. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit already beginning to work in your life. Let's look at the last three verses of our passage, which will lead me to my last point, and it will give us the answer we're looking for as far as how this comes to be. Be in verses 13 through 15 here. My third point, the new birth is made possible only by Jesus. Looking at the text, the first thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus changes his use of pronouns. It's a very small thing in the text, but it's very important. So up to this point in the discourse, it's been first and second person, just normal dialogue, right? Back and forth, I, you, etc. Now Jesus changes to third person, he, whoever. Why does he do that? He does that because what he's about to say is no longer just for Nicodemus. It's for all of mankind. All of humanity needs to hear these important words, this answer to the question. So if you're wondering how spiritual life happens, here's your answer from Jesus himself. You will not hear a better answer. In the midst of this, Nicodemus fades to black in the conversation. Jesus' answer comes with two Old Testament references that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. The first, he twice, first, he twice refers to himself here as the son of man. That's odd to us. That's a messianic reference from Daniel 7. Nicodemus would have been very familiar with that. But primarily here, he refers to a story of an, a strange story of a bronze serpent being raised in the wilderness from Numbers 21 from the history of the uh, nation of Israel. Again, Nicodemus would have been very familiar with this. If you would like to turn there, you are welcome to. It's Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9 on page 129 of the uh, Bible's under your chair. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. I'm going to summarize it, but you're still welcome to follow along. So to give some context, the nation of Israel has come through the Exodus, so they've left Egypt, come through the Red Sea. They're not yet in the Promised Land. God has been providing for the nation of Israel day after day after day. They walk out every morning of their tents. There's this light, flaky, bready substance called manna on the ground. It's only enough for the day. God is uh, teaching the nation of Israel to trust him by providing for them day after day. Well, the nation of Israel has grown sick and tired of eating manna. So they complain to God, they complain to, to Moses. In God's righteous wrath, he sends poisonous snakes into their camp. The, camps, or the, the snakes start biting some of them, and some of them are dying in this. God hears their cries. Moses intercedes for the nation of Israel God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole in the middle of camp. And all they have to do to be saved is to look at this bronze serpent on a pole. A lot of the Old Testament can be strange at times, but sometimes the Old Testament so clearly points to Jesus that it doesn't require a lot of explanation. But of course, you know it. I'm going to tell you what it means anyways, how it points to him. So every other time in the Gospel of John, the phrase lifted up is used. John is explicitly referring to Jesus being lifted up on a cross. So here's the point, friend. I'm going to draw five parallels from that passage to us today. Just like Israel blasphemed against God, we have all blasphemed against God by rebelling against him. Just like Israel, we too stand under the righteous wrath of God apart from salvation. Like the poison from the snake, sin is literally running through our veins prior to salvation. 
Like the snake that was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up on a cross and became a curse and became our sin for us. And five, like the Israelites who lay dying, unable to move, all we have to do is look to Jesus in faith. This requires a turning from our sin as we look to him and believe that he is the son of God. This is what has happened to every single person here who is born again. You were helpless in your spiritual deadness. Someone shared the gospel with you, something similar to the five parallels that I just explained. And then God, in his great love, brought you to spiritual life. And you responded with repentance and faith. And it happened in that order. And when this happens, you are finally and freely able to worship the one that you were made to worship. Jesus. Friends, as I close today, I want to quickly share a conversion story of someone in history you've probably heard of. You may not know his conversion story, but his testimony kind of highlights what we've been talking about today like nothing else I know. So I'm just going to quickly read it to you, and then I'll be done. I appreciate your attention. By the time he was 15 years old, he was keenly aware of his sinfulness and felt truly helpless with the burden of guilt he was carrying over it. Then in January of 1850, walking to an unnamed place of worship in Colchester, England, he found himself caught in a snowstorm. He turned down a side street and walked into a small, primitive Methodist chapel. A common layman had to fill in on short notice, presumably because the absent preacher was caught in a snowstorm, so this is every deacon's worst nightmare. <laughs> Service starts, you have no idea the preacher's not coming. You got it, right? No warning. For that reason... His text was a single verse. It was Isaiah 45, 22. In the verse, this is God speaking. I'm reading from the King James. The verse states, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He had nothing else. So for about 10 minutes, he just kept getting louder and louder and louder, repeating himself. Then he fixed his eyes on the young man, probably because he knew he was new, and he spoke to him directly. He said, young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> you look, yeah, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey right now, at this moment, you will be saved. Then, lifting up his hands, he shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. At that, the young man later wrote, he said, I saw at once the way of salvation. I don't know anything else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the bronze serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. A lot of us in here probably already know who this is. The young man's name was Charles Spurgeon. Within a few months, that young man, Charles, had preached his first sermon. Within a year, he had accepted his first pastorate and the rest of his well-documented pastoral ministry that continues to minister around the globe was history. I'm going to give you three quick final points of application, then I'll be done here. First, for believers in the room, sometimes the best response to a passage as far as how do we apply this to ourselves is simply worship. So as we close in song in a few moments, I'd encourage you to sing loudly in praise to your God who has saved you 
in spite of you through the person of Jesus. For anyone here who this idea of the spiritual or the the new birth or regeneration, this is unclear to you. Don't be embarrassed about that. This is a weighty topic. I would love to talk to you afterwards. Or perhaps you're sitting here and you realize you are unsure of your own standing before a holy God. Please come talk to me afterwards or talk to one of the many members in this room. We would love to talk to you. And lastly, to Winchester Baptist Church as a whole, as we continue to grow and minister in the greater Winchester area, I remind you our purpose as a church is clear. We are to graciously point each other and the lost to Jesus through his word and then pray. Pray for the spirit to blow that souls may be saved. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this miraculous gift of the new birth that is completely undeserved. It is completely a means of your grace towards us. Father, I pray that this truth would compel us as a church to be a a more gracious body of believers, that we'd be loving and merciful and compassionate to each other, to the lost around us, that we would have a burden for them, that we would share the gospel expectantly, knowing that you can work. There's never anyone too far gone. And I pray that we would just be able, as a church, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We love you. We trust you. We thank you for this opportunity to gather. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.